This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm Troy Kitch. On February 22, 1901, a steamship arriving from Hong Kong named the SS City of Rio de Janeiro struck rocks and sank in minutes. It was one of the worst maritime disasters in San Francisco history. It happened near San Francisco, close to where the Golden Gate Bridge is today. And yet we only confirmed the location of the wreck in November 2014. Today's guest, Noah's Robert Schwemmer, picks up the story from here. These people are so close to land. They were an hour away from the dock. Safety. They had traveled all the way from Hong Kong, Japan. You know, immigrants. America was their new home. They were at the doorstep. So close. And they would go down, you know, inside of San Francisco. And their bodies were strewn. The, the ones that actually went in the water were all the way up Raccoon Straits near Berkeley, all the way out to the heads of San Francisco. But many were, you know, in their berths down below. Never had a chance to get up on the deck. Because as the ship struck Fort Point, it went, you know, broke its back, slid off. The ebbing tide pushed the ship back to sea. And it went to the bottom in 10 minutes. Robert Schwimmer is the West Coast Regional Maritime Heritage Coordinator for NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. He's co-leading a two-year effort of NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries Maritime Heritage Program to locate and document shipwrecks in and around California's Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuary. Robert, for so many of us, shipwrecks seem full of mystery and adventure, but the story of this shipwreck is a reminder that these are, these are real-life and death events in history. Could you tell us a bit more about the Rio de Janeiro? I'd love to go down and see this beautiful iron hull, um, but she's at the bottom of a slope of mud, and sediment's been coming down for 113 years, and she's being covered. She's entombed, and you know you can see the symmetrical lines of the bow of the ship, uh, which is great. But over time, the ship will, you know, it'll be totally covered. And, you know, being a grave site, uh, that's that's okay when you think about. You know, 128 lives that were lost that day. The Chinese crewmen were having difficulty because even though they'd gone through these lifeboat drills over the years, they never actually launched a lifeboat. They deployed to the lifeboat in part of the drills. And there were only two of the Chinese crewmen that spoke English that can translate, which worked just fine in their normal course of their day-to-day duties of, you know, putting coal in the boilers, doing whatever chores, everything was hand gestures. It all worked fine until disaster struck, and they didn't have the knowledge to launch the lifeboats. And, you know, Pacific Mail Steamship Company was held liable. And, um, yeah, of 210 on board, 128 were lost. Many think of shipwrecks based on what we've seen in the movies, but of course that's not the case here since this wreck is covered in sediment. So since you can't get to it with divers or a remotely operated vehicle, you used three-dimensional sonar to map it. Can you talk a bit about this tool? We have that Hollywood vision of what a ship look looks like, but in reality out here, especially in the Pacific, where we have a lot of turbulent water currents and so on, and not always, always the best visibility, um, you know, using this multi-beam 3D sonar imagery really gives people the big picture because if we were to go down there with a traditional ROV and map these sites, um, especially around the Golden Gate where the vis is very low and the currents are strong, 
all you would see would be like in, using a flashlight going into a cave, what's in the beam of that light. That's all you would see, and it would be not clear view. And, and with 3D imagery now, we can just turn all the lights on in the cave and, and show you the entire wreck. So you try to tie together the shipwreck imagery you gather with historical documentation. What did the ship look like before? What were the people that served aboard that ship? We have those images, and many of those images come from our partners, um, like at the San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park. So we need all of that information to really clearly show the, the linkages and the history and the stories. So uh, otherwise, people would just be looking at 3D imagery and, and just not have the, what the, the ship actually looked like historically in the 19th century. And you know, shipwrecks are amazing time capsules, providing maritime archaeologists and historians with a snapshot of a given day in history. If you think about it, it's not contaminated by modern events. It's a clear shot of that given day. You know, we learn about the technology of that period. Uh, we learn how the ships were built. You know, we don't have ship's plans or modern CAD drawings as we do today. So we have to methodically map and survey these shipwrecks and kind of rebuild them and, and see how they were constructed. But before you do this, of course, you have to first find where the wrecks are and identify them. Would you say that this step is the hardest part of the work? It's a lifetime of work, uh, locating shipwrecks uh, at Channel Islands where I've been working. I've probably been diving shipwrecks there for nearly 40 years. Um, and of the hundreds of shipwrecks at the Channel Islands National Marine Sanctuary, we've located just over 30 and those are the larger ships. So uh, finding shipwrecks is a long, tedious process. Um, we are very fortunate off the Gulf of the Farallons that you know we had such success in our, our first you know year's mission out there. But let's talk a bit about the first year of the mission. Aside from confirming the location of the Rio de Janeiro, your team has so far confirmed the discovery of the 1910 shipwreck SS Selja, identified an early steam tugboat wreck, located the 1863 wreck of the clipper ship Noonday, and completed the first detailed map of the steamship SS City of Chester. And all of this was just in the Golden Gate area, and it all happened within the first two missions of the first year of the two-year study. And that's not a bad start. So could you tell us what a typical day has been like doing this kind of shipwreck detective work? Basically, my role is to serve as a cruise leader for the expedition. Um, as a co-principal investigator along with Dr. James Delgado, who is the chief scientist over this two-year mission. So I basically conduct the research on the shipwreck targets um, and come up with a list of assessments uh, for our research plan. Uh, I reach out to the private community to provide additional support in multi-beam sonar acquisition of potential archaeological targets. I prepare media B-roll, which includes you know historic vessel images and multi-beam images, and the cruise plans. Um, so we're involved, uh, you know, in the day-to-day -day operations uh, on site uh, as a scientist, as an archaeologist, uh, looking at multiple sonar targets out there, and, and some of which uh, turn up just to be a lot of mud. Uh, we uh, mow the grass with an ROV and look a lot of mud, <laughs> but. And then we come up and all of a sudden we'll see scours and we'll see uh, deposits of shell in those scours. Uh, we'll start to see fish and we know 
we're onto something that's got habitat, hopefully structure, and in this case, uh, for the work that we did this year in the Gulf of Farallons, we found uh, the remains of four shipwrecks, including a 170-foot tugboat uh, that we had no record of being lost out there near southeast Farallon Island. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago that you reach out to the private community. Could you talk about that? Uh, this isn't just a NOAA effort? For the expeditions that we just completed in Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary in Monterey Bay and also Golden Gate, um, I've worked with um, shipwreck sport diving community. Uh, there's a couple of uh, divers, Robert Lanham and Bruce Lanham, that have been diving shipwrecks in this region uh, since the 1960s. And they have a wealth of information. Uh, they've been very forthcoming in sharing locations on known discoveries and giving really detailed site descriptions. And uh, other volunteers, uh, Gary Fabian, he's in Central Texas. I've never met the man, but he has volunteered hundreds of hours scouring over multi-beam data that um, we've you know, provided him. And he's been very essential in helping us pinpoint you know, multi-beam features that have man-made uh, symmetrical lines and so on that indicate that we have, may have a possible shipwreck. And that's, again, where I come into it and start doing the research along with Dr. Delgado to see if we can put a name to the, the multi-beam or go out and see if we do have a shipwreck and then work backwards and try to put the history together based on our site assessment underwater. Uh, we also work really closely uh, with the National Park Service. But in the Golden Gate, we do a lot of data sharing. Um, there's some great historians there that have a, a wealth of knowledge. Uh, we take them out on the expeditions. We involve them in our uh, media outreach events. And the uh, Maritime Research Center uh, at San Francisco, it's uh, San Francisco Na Maritime National Park, Historical Park, they've got a wealth of historic images, and they have been very key in our outreach and our media side by providing, uh, through our partnership, uh, a lot of historic images uh, for these expeditions we've been doing um, off San Francisco. That there's a shipwreck sport diving community and a maritime research center is, I guess, a pretty good indicator that there are a lot of wrecks in the region around San Francisco. So how many wrecks are we talking about in the greater Gulf of the Farallons? If you were to include the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, nearly 1,300 square miles by itself, the northern Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary from San Mateo County North, which is also managed by the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary, another 1,400 square miles. Then you include the Golden Gate National Recreational Area up to the uh, Golden Gate entrance or bridge, as most people know it today. There are over 300 ship and aircraft losses. Wow. So... I can see that probably uh, two years isn't quite enough time to locate and document all the wrecks in the area. In two years, you will not find even a quarter of the shipwrecks that are out there because finding the shipwreck, of course, is first and foremost in confirming what the shipwreck is. The next phase is its mapping, its documentation, you know, the sonar imagery, um, it's doing the map, it's doing additional research on the historical significance of that wreck. All of this plays into building um, 
the nomination from the National Register of Historic Places. So there's, it's a quite a lengthy process. Uh, and so we may go back with different instrumentation to look at wreck sites, to get different types of documentation. We found the shipwreck Selja, turn of the century, went down off Point Reyes. Very difficult to record with an ROV because of the strong currents and the lower visibility. It would be an ideal shipwreck to take a multi-beam or 3D sonar image and basically paint the wreck in color. and We'd have a better understanding of how the ship lies. and It's a pretty catastrophic uh, sight looking at it, the way it's twisted laying on the bottom. And it's so it's a project that would be ongoing. So we have to determine in the second year, do we return to the sites that we have discovered and continue additional survey work, or do we move on and try to just, you know, discover new sites? So that's all part of the research plan pre-mission to prioritize it. It has a lot to do with sea state and weather conditions. You mentioned the National Register of Historic Places. Is the goal to get all the shipwrecks you find included in this National Register? Can you tell us a bit about why this is important? Well, listing a, a shipwreck on the National Register doesn't necessarily give it um, a higher level protection, but it gives it a, the level recognition um, of historical significance with the American public. And what it does, it also allows for funding opportunity and grants. And the National Historic Preservation Act directs government agencies like NOAA that manage federal lands, including submerged lands, to inventory prehistoric and historic heritage resources. And upon you know discovery, we map, we photograph the documentation, you know, we develop outreach and educational initiatives based on those resources, which can include you know, museum exhibits or learning centers. But most importantly, if the resource meets the criteria for the National Register of Historic Places, then we process the nomination for listing, which we have you know, done a couple times out here in the Pacific. That's the really important, I guess, mandate requirement to go out and record these sites. The educational value in touching people with these stories uh, is a bonus. So what's coming up next? Are you planning to continue work in the Golden Gate area? Our goal is actually to return uh, the work that we did in November um, with the discovery of the city of Rio de Janeiro as well as um, sonar imaging of the city of Chester. That's all part of this because even though we're working outside the boundary of Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary or the northern boundary of Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, it's still all part of the maritime cultural landscape. You know, they cross those lines. They all, they all interconnect these the stories. As a matter of fact, just in the Golden Gate entrance there, we have three vessels built by John Roach and Son in uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. We have the city of Chester, we have the city of Rio de Janeiro, and we have the city of New York, all lost right there at the mouth of the Golden Gate. That's unbelievable that all three vessels made in Pennsylvania by the same company all ended up so close to one another right at the Golden Gate entrance. So why are there so many wrecks in the San Francisco Bay Area? When we were doing survey work there in September and November, it was magnificent. We had calm days. We had low winds. You know, sea state was just great to work with. But 
we've also been on those waters where suddenly the waters are no longer calm and they become very treacherous to shipping. Uh, and there's lots of fog, uh, especially off San Francisco. Uh, as we get closer to the Golden Gate entrance, there's eddies, there's riptides, uh, strong currents. Uh, this in the runoff uh, during the rains, there's a lot more water that runs through that tight entrance that covers rocks that are no, normally exposed. So the three ages, uh, San Francisco is, is, has been a challenging place to navigate for mariners. Uh, early in 1853, for instance, uh, the Gold Rush steamer uh, Tennessee uh, missed the entrance to San Francisco and wrecked in a cove just north of Point Bonita, which today is known as Tennessee Cove, Tennessee Point, and Tennessee Valley. And there was, yeah, there was another uh, gold rush um, loss, uh, the SS Lewis, uh, which is up at Duxbury Reef. And among the passengers was Captain William T. Sherman, 3rd U.S. Infantry, early in his career, on leave from the U.S. Army. He was returning to San Francisco aboard the ship when yeah, she wrecked. And this was... Uh, was April of 1853, same year, the loss of Tennessee. So the passengers and crew all got ashore safely. Sherman discovered a schooner loaded with lumber. He persuaded the captain to take him to San Francisco. And as they approached Fort Point, the same location that the uh, city of Chester wrecked, as well as um, the striking by the city of Rio de Janeiro, the wind kicked up, and they met a really strong ebb tide and driving them to sea and drove the nose of the schooner underwater and she dove in like a duck and he went over the side and began to drift out with the tide and I guess the vessel refused to sink because of the lumber cargo so Sherman who had been thrown overboard clambered back on the side and soon after the boat approached uh, Sherman board they deposited him at Fort Point a very wet captain walked to the Presidio thinking that two shipwrecks in one day was not a beginning of his future career. He went into the banking business. And for those listening in, just to be clear, that's William T. Sherman, the future Civil War general, who now you know was also a banker. It's a great story. I, I wish we had time to hear more, but that's all the time we have for this episode. Robert Schwimmer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Do you have any parting words for our listeners? from, you know, submerged Native American sites still waiting to be discovered, um, shipwrecks of exploration dating back to 1595 with the loss of Spain's Manila Galleon, San Augustine, in Drake's Bay, California, which is part of the Gulf of Fairlawns National Marine Sanctuary, to, you know, 19th century shipwrecks uh, we're just beginning to discover, you know, over 100 years old and after the loss, uh, those are coming to light. So, yeah, great. Um, Pacific Coast is an amazing underwater maritime museum, and especially right off San Francisco. The diversity of steam, sail, exploration, uh, military, it's all there. And that was Robert Schwimmer, West Coast Regional Maritime Heritage Coordinator for NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. He joined us by phone from his office in Santa Barbara. You can see photos, 3D sonar imagery, and videos from NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries Maritime Heritage Program online. Check our show notes for the links. You don't want to miss it. And that's it for the episode. 
Write to nos.info at noaa.gov if you want to leave us a comment. And this is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We'll be back in about a month. <laughs>